out and open to the book of Revelation. Easy to find, it is the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, our sermon this morning is from the entire chapter, verses 1 through 14. It's printed in the book, and you're welcome to follow along there as well. But before we get into the text today, I'd like to speak to our children for just a moment and ask them a couple of questions. So children, if I could have your attention for just a minute. Children, how many of you are here? How many of you love Christmas carols? Anyone love Christmas carols? Anyone love Christmas carols? Okay, good. I'm glad to see that. I love Christmas carols. I love to sing them all year round. I love singing them in the summertime. I figure there is never a bad time to sing a song about Jesus. Who has a favorite Christmas carol? Anyone shout out a favorite Christmas carol for me? Shalom? Shalom, a classic. <laughs> Any? Oh, come all ye faithful. Thank you. Good, good. Well, we all have favorite songs to sing and favorite Christmas carols. I have my own favorites. And I want to tell you I learned something about Christmas carols this week. As I was thinking about them and as I was reading through some of them, I realized something that I hadn't realized before. We all know what we celebrate at Christmas time. Christmas is the time when we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, that he came and he was born in a manger, in a stable in Bethlehem. But I realized we celebrate much more than that at Christmas time. If you read the Christmas carols and you, you listen as we sing them, you realize they're not only about the birth of Jesus, they're also about the life of Jesus. And the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus. They're about everything that he does for us. It's not just his birth. We'll see uh, after the sermon later, we're going to sing, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And it's not only about his birth, but it says, Born, why? To set your people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. It's about everything that Christ does for us. And I think this makes sense. Because when we think of a baby, we're not just thinking of them as a baby, but what they will do in life. This week, uh, very special news in the Tell slash Rampy family this week, as Aubrey and I got a new nephew this week. Yay, Aubrey's little brother, his wife, gave birth this week to their first child, and so be an uncle all over again. And I was thinking about this. We were celebrating this new baby named Silas that's now a part of the family. And as I was thinking about it, we, we don't only look at this little baby and, and think about the fact that they're a baby. But as soon as you see a new baby that you love, what are you thinking about? You're already dreaming about what they're going to be, who they're going to become, what they're going to do in life. You're thinking about how they're going to change the family, how our whole family now is different because there's another member of the family, there's this new person who's a part of us. So as soon as a baby is born, we're already looking forward. We're already looking ahead to think about what they will become. That's how it is with Jesus. And that's how it is with Jesus as well. When we see Jesus in the manger, we can't only think about Jesus as a baby, but we're immediately drawn into thinking about who does he become? Who is he going to be? What is he going to do? How are we and our family is going to be different? Because he's here. Because he's come. He's been born. He has done he does. And so Christmas is not just about baby Jesus, it's about the man, Jesus. The life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the reign of Jesus. And that's why, for this Christmas season, we're in the book of Revelation. It seems a little odd, we're not in Luke, we're not in Matthew, we're not talking about the shepherds and the wise men. Because we're not just talking about Jesus as a baby, we're talking about who he becomes, what he accomplishes, what he has done for us in his life. And so, 
our passage today. It's about Christmas carols. Sort of. At least there's, there's songs. People are singing new songs to Jesus in this passage. And it's not just Jesus the baby, it's Jesus the Savior. Jesus the Redeemer. So let me read our text for us today. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 14. Our custom here, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of God for us. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, this is your true, inerrant word that is perfect, given to us that we might be fully equipped for life and for godliness and for every good work. We pray that you will open our eyes, that we may see and that we might understand. But even more, O Lord, open our hearts that we might join our voices with the voices of the angels with every creature under heaven, singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Father, it's in His name, and for His sake, and for His glory, His honor, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This chapter comes to us today, it's, a, it's like a play in three acts. First, it begins with the act of weeping. John standing before the throne weeping loudly. The second act is an act of beholding as his eyes are opened and he sees Jesus Christ. And the third act is singing. This is a text today that takes us from weeping 
into beholding all the way through and we come out the other side singing. First of all, this is a text that opens with weeping. Verses 1 through 4 set the scene for us. It opens this way. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's the first thing we hear. John is in a room, and in this room there is someone who's seated on a throne. There's a king in this room. There's someone here who has power, who has might, who is ruling sovereignly. He's seated on a throne. We know who he's, been, who he's describing here. He's describing God. He's describing God the Father. He's in the throne room of God in his heavenly vision. And yet he doesn't say, I'm here and I see God. He says it this way, the one seated upon a throne. I think he does that intentionally. He wants us not, not just to hear God and, and, and to fill that with the content that we already know that, and think, okay, yep, we know who that is. He wants us to picture it this way. God is on a throne. God is in heaven. He's seated on his throne from which, from which he rules over all the affairs of heaven and of earth. He is the king. And so immediately as this scene opens, this vision of John, God is the one who is seated upon the throne. We need to know that. We need to feel in our bones what he says, that this is who God is. God is the one who's seated on a throne. God is the one who is sovereign over all things. God is the one who is in charge. That's good for us. That, that's healthy for us to start a vision and to say, first of all, God is the one who's on the throne. In the midst of everything else that's going on in our lives, where is God? God is on his throne in heaven. He wants us to not only see God and know that it's God, but to feel the power of his sovereignty, to feel his absolute majesty, the one seated on the throne. Some of you might be familiar with, with uh, what's often called the four spiritual laws. It's a method of evangelism. There's a booklet that describes the gospel and it gives it in four steps. And the last step asks the question, who is on the throne? Who's on the throne of your life? They say, for most of us, particularly if we're not believers or if, if we don't know Christ, the one on the throne of our life is us. It, it pictures this throne and it says, me on the throne. Because apart from Christ, that's how we live. We are sovereign over our own decisions. And it says part of becoming a Christian means that we learn to recognize that we are not on the throne, that God is on the throne. And that's where this vision starts. It starts with the recognition that we are not in charge, that we are not sovereign, we are not calling the shots, but God alone is the center of the universe. Everything revolves around him. To say anything else is on the throne is, is what the Bible would call idolatry. To worship something other than God, to bow and to sing before anything else other than God. And so we need to recognize this. We need to stop putting ourselves on the throne. We need to stop putting anything else on the throne and recognize that, that this is the one who is in heaven and he is seated on the throne. He is the king. And it says, he sees in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne a scroll. The scroll is really, it's an inanimate object, but it's a major player in this vision. It's mentioned eight times here, and, and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, we know that in the book of Revelations, there, there's some numbers that have significance to them, and seven is one of those numbers. It's the number of completion, perfection, fullness. To say that this the scroll is sealed with seven seals is to say that this is a perfect scroll. It's full, it's complete, and it's sealed perfectly. This scroll is written on the front and on the back, 
And what it contains is God's plan for the world. Now, we don't know exactly the words that are on this scroll. There's no point in the book where the scroll is actually read out loud to us. But this is what we see in the book of Revelation, the following chapters. As the scroll is opened, God's plans are unfolding. It's his plan for judgment as well as his plan for redemption. It's his plan for everything that he is setting out to accomplish to bring all of creation to its appointed goal. It's God's plan that's on the scroll. It doesn't, we don't know exactly the words. I doubt that it includes the details of everyday life. You say we open the scroll and say, find today's date. Oh, yeah, I was wearing my black shirt today. It's not every last detail, but it's God's plan for all things, judgment and redemption, bringing them to their completion. That's what's on this scroll. That's what happens as it's opened. God's plan is revealed, and we see that eventually, one day, when this scroll becomes open, God is going to deal with all of the evil, all of the injustice, all of the brokenness of this world. That's what happens. He he brings everything to completion when he judges sin and he's judging wickedness. And we see that God does finally deal with all of the brokenness of our world. We live in a broken world where evil is all around us. We know that just by experience. And when this scroll is opened, finally we see that day come when God takes care of it all. That's what we're all longing for, is to see that day when God deals with all of the sin and the evil and the wickedness and the injustice in the world. And that's what happens. It's as though finally God makes everything sort of make sense. We, we see that God no longer is sitting by idly, but now he's taking an active role when this scroll is open. So this scroll contains God's plan for the world, but for a moment here, it seems as though all of that is in jeopardy. Because in verse 2, it describes this angel who is seeking one who is worthy to open the scroll. It says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? And no one is found. He, He looks in heaven, on earth, even under the earth, and no one is found who's worthy to open the scroll. And so it seems for a moment now that here is God's plan for the world, how everything is going to come to its appointed end and the world will finally make sense and God will finally step in and do what we've been waiting for him to do all along. But for a moment it seems maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe we'll never know. Maybe God will never act because no one is found who can open this scroll. And John begins to weep loudly. Verse 4, he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. He's weeping here because this plan of God, when he finally deals with all the evil and injustice, it's never going to happen. He's never going to know. God is never going to act. And I think for all of us, even just as human beings, we can relate to John here because as human beings, we need to know that there is a plan, don't we? We need to know that in the midst of this crazy world that there is a plan that is ruling over all. A week and a half ago, uh, Paul Walker died. No doubt you saw the news. Uh, And on that Friday, just as all the reports were coming out, I was reading some of the articles online about what had happened in this this car crash. And and as I was reading them, I, I admit I broke one of my own personal policies. I have a personal policy that whenever I'm reading an article online or a blog post or something, I never read the comment section. I don't know if you've ever done it. There's never anything useful in the comment section. I never read it. But this time, 
the, the news was just breaking, and it was so new. There was very little news in the article. So I thought, well, I'll scan the comments and see if, if there's any other information that can be found. And of course there wasn't. There never is. But here's what I did see. That immediately, within hours of that news breaking, that, that Paul Walker had died in this car accident, immediately there were uh, these um, <coughs> conspiracy theories. There were conspiracy theories popping up about what had caused the car accident. That, that maybe there was this group who had been responsible for other celebrity deaths in the past that had planted a bomb inside the car and they had a button somewhere and, and at just the right time they pushed... And, you know, it, none of it made any sense at all. Of course it wasn't logical. You don't put any stock in any of that. We know that's not true. But, but this is what it reflects. I think it reflects the fact that, that we need to know that there is a big overarching plan that makes things make sense. As human beings, we, we just can't deal with the fact that sometimes there is this senseless evil in the world and that terrible things happen and, and with this possibility that maybe there's no plan that makes it all make sense. That maybe bad things happen and that's just the way it is and no one can do anything about it. And so even if it seems completely far-fetched, we're trying to, to grasp for straws and say, there is a plan. Someone is in charge. Someone knows what's going on in the midst of all of this. There is a plan at work that is governing all things. And it's much greater than conspiracy theories, I can tell you that. But we need to be able to make sense of the world. And here's the Apostle John. Remember who he was. John had seen many of his friends, by this point, he had seen many of his friends be violently killed for the preaching of the gospel. Many of his fellow apostles had died, and they, not of natural causes. They had been killed for preaching the gospel. John himself had, had been boiled alive, and that didn't work. It didn't kill him. He survived that. And then they exiled him to Patmos, and now here he was on this remote island left to die. Is there a plan that makes this make sense? Is someone still in charge in the midst of all of this evil going on, this senseless wickedness? And now for a moment it seems like, okay, there is no plan that's going to tie all things together and God's going to make it all make sense and the scroll cannot be opened and he weeps. And of course he weeps. Some of you are weeping today because evil and injustice and death are not just news stories that we hear about, but they affect us personally. They affect us personally, and, and that's what happens. And so, and so we weep. We're going through trials, and the question is always, why? What is God doing in the midst of this? Is there going to be a moment when God sort of makes it all make sense, makes, brings it all together, unleashes his plan, punishes the wickedness in the world, takes care of those who are afflicted? Does he have a plan after all? Then verse 5. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, at last, one who has been found who is worthy to open the scroll. So he says, weep no more. One has been found who is worthy. Jesus has conquered and he is worthy to open the scroll and to unseal the seven seals. Jesus is the one who, who can bring God's plan about. Jesus is the one who can, can unleash God's plan for the world. He can reveal it, can bring about his purposes, and he's the only one. He's the only one. He searched all of heaven and earth, even under the earth, and Jesus is the only one who is worthy. I think what this means is this, that apart from Christ, we'll just never be able to make sense of the world. We'll never be able to make sense of all of the evil, all of the unfairness, all of the injustice that takes place 
in our world. Life will just become this senseless progression of events, some good, some bad, some indifferent, but without any rhyme or reason. And we'll never know what it all is for. It's only in Christ that we can begin to, to believe that there is a plan, that God is at work in the world, that he is doing something, and he will, in the end, make everything good, make everything make sense, bring everything together for, for the benefit, for the good of those who love him. We believe what Romans 8.28 says, that, that God is at work and there is this plan, that all things work together for good for, for those who love God. And so the weeping now comes to an end because there is one who is worthy and the weeping gives way now to beholding. John is here, he's weeping because of this, but now he says, weep no more and look. Look, he beholds Jesus. And what we see is two things. First, in verses 5 and 6, there is a, a description of Jesus that he hears with his ear that the elder is giving him, but then he sees with his eyes and he sees a vision of Jesus. He hears a description, then he sees a vision. And it, it's fascinating. We have to have both of them together because they're very different. But first, he hears this description, and he hears the lion of the tribe of Judah. Weep no more, the elder says. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Which is my favorite tribe. If you remember in the Old Testament... Old Testament Israel was broken into 12 tribes. Judah was one of these tribes. And uh, they were the preeminent tribe. King David was a member of the tribe of Judah. All the kings, at least of the, the southern kingdom, all the kings who had God's approval, were all members of the tribe of Judah. Jesus himself is a member of the tribe of Judah, which is why here he's, he's associated with it. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And way back in Genesis... 49. I want to read a few verses to you. At the end of Genesis, Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, who are the heads of these 12 tribes of Israel. And he gives a blessing on each one of these sons that, that is prophetic, telling us what that tribe will be like and who they will become. And I want you to hear what he says about the tribe of Judah. This is Genesis 49, uh, starting in verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You hear what he's saying here? He's giving this blessing to Judah, saying, Judah, the scepter shall never depart from you. The ruler's staff will never depart from you. To you shall be the obedience of the peoples. Telling us here that, that this is what the tribe of Judah would be like. They are the tribe of kings. It says Judah is a lion's cub. The whole tribe of Judah was a tribe of lions. And Jesus now called the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the lion of lions. He's the king of kings. The, the lion, of course, this, this great image that we get. The king of the jungle. The mighty beast. All the animals fear the lion, his very roar. They, they hear from miles off and are afraid. And this is Jesus. He's the lion of this tribe of lions, the king of kings, the ruler of all rulers. And so immediately we have this picture of Jesus as the ultimate king who, who overcomes by 
his vast resources, his unstoppable force. He also describes him as the root of David. This one is a title that comes out of Isaiah's prophecy. It's Isaiah chapter 11. In fact, it's something we often read at Christmas time. And part of it says this, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Again, he's a conquering king who comes and he rules over the nations and he kills his enemies. And this description so far it has a certain appeal to us, doesn't it? Certain testosterone-fueled ultimate warrior type of Jesus who, who comes and conquers by his vast, unstoppable force. And, and this is the truth, is that we want a conqueror. We need a conqueror. Again, I was reading this week uh, in the paper and, and just impressed... There's always these moments for me living in L.A. I have these moments where you just sense how broken this world is in so many ways all around us. You know, coming, coming from a small town in, in, in the south, small towns have all their own types of brokenness and there's, they're filled with it themselves, but something about a big city where you have so much of it all sort of in one place, there's so much brokenness. And there was one article in the paper this week that, that uh, <clears throat> noted they were having a memorial this week down, in, uh, down somewhere down in L.A., for all of the, it was a funeral memorial for the unclaimed bodies. And it said these were the bodies that had, had people who had died during 2010 and nobody had claimed them. And there were 1,500 of them. One city in one year, 1,500 people died with not so much as, as anyone who would even come identify them. And they had a mass grave. And it's a mass grave down in L.A. that they use every year for a similar ceremony. Every year there's about this many people who die, and, and I was just so impressed. What a broken world we live in. We need a conquering king. We need someone who can come and can set everything right, who can rule in his might and in his righteousness, who can deal with all of the evil, all of the injustice, all of the unfairness and brokenness in the world. We need a conqueror. We hear news like that, and you just don't know what to do other than to long all the more for that day. When Jesus will come and make everything right, we need a conqueror. But not only do we hear the description from this elder, but, but now John turns in verse 6. He's heard it with his ears, and now he turns and he sees this one who has just been described. His eyes are scanning the room here in verse 6, and he says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, we just heard this description, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David who comes to conquer, and he looks to see him come, and he sees a lamb. Not a sheep, a lamb. A middle schooler can pick up a lamb. It's a lamb standing as though he had been slain, as though he had been offered as a, a sacrificial lamb. The text doesn't give us all the details, but from what we know of sacrifices in, in this time period, in this day and age, his throat was most likely cut. The, the wool matted with blood. That's the image we have of this lamb standing there as though it had been slain. But he's, he's slain, but he's standing. He's not slumped over. He's, he's standing there looking as though he's been slain. And, and this vision now that we have of the bloody lamb couldn't be any more different from the description we've just heard of the conquering lion. But it, it's in this twist right here, this this ironic twist of the description and the vision that we truly understand who Jesus is. 
that he is one who went to the cross and who was sacrificed like a sacrificial lamb. And for all the world, that looked like a great defeat to be killed, crucified on a cross by your enemies. And yet, it's there that we understand through, through what God tells us that it's actually at the cross that he was winning his greatest victory. When he looked most like this sacrificial lamb being given over to the, the slaughter, that is when he was most the lion of the tribe of Judah. That is when he was most the root of David, conquering king, winning the victory over his enemies. That is when he was most putting all his enemies to flight. The irony of this is not in spite of his death and resurrection that, that he has victory, but it's through his death that he becomes victorious. It is through his death that he defeated the ultimate enemy and, and proved in in the most unexpected way to be the conquering king who puts away sin and puts away death and puts away hell and puts away the devil for all time. He conquered not in spite of his death, but through it. And all the creatures in heaven see this and they fall down at his feet and they worship. Verse 8, when he's taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the lamb. They sing a new song. They see this and and Jesus goes and he takes that scroll and they they worship him. I I heard a story uh, this last week from a a pastor who who was saying that he had been to his his grandfather's farm out in the country and he lived out in the country and he said he had ten dogs because when you live in the country you can have ten dogs if you want. And they were bird dogs. And he said while he was there, a bird flew by and one of the dogs saw that bird and, and just had to go get it. And so he starts barking and he runs off after that bird. And so, of course, all the other nine dogs, they, they might not have seen the bird, but they go barking with him and they join in the club. And, and the grandfather, he knew exactly what would happen. He said that first dog would get it and the other nine dogs would come back in a few minutes. And that's exactly what happened. A few minutes later, nine of the dogs returned, just kind of panting, walking around. But about 30 minutes later, the first dog came back and he had the bird in his mouth. And his grandfather explained he knew exactly why that would happen because only the first dog had actually seen the bird. He was the only dog who had seen him with his eyes, and so he had the resources and the endurance and the power to go get it and to conquer. Whereas the other nine dogs, they were just kind of along for the ride. They were just hooting, hollering, barking up a storm, you know, running, because that's what dogs do. They go in a pack. But he said only the one who actually saw the bird with his eyes had the endurance and, and the resources to keep after him in the midst of difficulties. The bird flew away and it was a long hunt and a long chase. He could do it because he had seen him with his eyes. And so it is for us when we see Jesus, when we we perceive the reality of who Jesus is, it's that vision of Christ, the, the lion who is also a lamb. We must see him in order to have that endurance in the midst of trials. See, there's some who, who never see Jesus for who he is. They never know the reality. And so maybe, you know, they're here and they're kind of going along with everybody, but, but they don't have the real endurance because they've never beheld Jesus with their eyes. It's this sight of Jesus that, that no matter what trial we're going through, no matter what injustice we're living with, we see Jesus. We see one who stands before us, and he is God. And he's covered in blood. He was slain. His throat was cut. Jesus knows what it is to weep at injustice. He wept when his friend Lazarus died. He literally wept tears of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the injustice that was about to befall him before his own death. 
Jesus is the one here who's he's worthy. He's worthy to open the scroll. He's been on our side of injustice, feeling its pain. And when we see him for who he is, we worship. We worship. And so we move from weeping first to, to beholding and then on to singing. We move from, from weeping to beholding on to singing. I think verse 7 is the key moment in this scene. If you look at verse 7, it says, He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So John, he's weeping, and through his tears, he sees him, Jesus approach the throne, and he takes the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne. And as he does so, the elders and the living creatures just burst into song. I don't know about you. In my mind, this is all sort of playing out in slow motion. That Jesus approaches, and he grabs the scroll, and at that moment when he gets it, everyone bursts into song. And it's like this shockwave of praise just was radiating out in concentric circles outward from the throne. We see verse 9. It's the elders and the living creatures around the throne. They sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. But then after, after he sees them bursting into song, then it's the next ring out. He sees in verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. That's, that's a number in the millions at least. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All of the angels are joining in the, this pion of praise. And then verse 13 says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, in the sea, all that is in them. I would love to know what that sounded like. Saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then finally verse 14 like the, the camera which has panned all the way out to its widest view. Now it zooms all the way back in on these elders. The living creatures say, Amen. And they fall down and they worship the lion who is the lamb. And now the scene has fully shifted from, from John weeping. Weeping in his own ignorance, his own doubt, his own fear to beholding Jesus and, and hearing all of heaven and earth break into song. Break into worship, praising the Lamb who is slain. John Piper says, There is a seeing that awakens savoring. There is a seeing that awakens savoring. And this is the essence of what it means for us as a church when we come together to worship on Sundays. That, that This is the truth, this is the reality, that many of us come in weeping or we come in from weeping about life, about the injustice of the world, about the evil and wickedness that's just all around us. But we come in and we behold. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated now at the right hand of God the Father. We fix our eyes on him. And we sing and we worship. We see and we are transformed from weeping into worshiping. The world would have us fix our eyes on a thousand different things that have us fix our eyes on TV, on sports, on the newspaper, on the internet, on our bank statement. You look at those things and your soul shrivels up and worship just evaporates. Then we fix our eyes on Jesus. 
we behold the Lion of Judah, who's the Lamb who was slain. Our souls are, are transformed in, in singing and worship. The song that the elders sing, verse 9, it, it mentions one thing in particular that, that they're singing about Jesus. This is what they're singing Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God. They're singing, He's worthy because He was slain. Even in heaven now, Jesus is, still bears the marks of His crucifixion. He's recognized as the one who was slain. And I think this is important for us because I think this is what it means that it's possible to see Jesus in different ways and, and to see him and not be changed. Because they're not singing, Worthy are you, for you were a completely decent teacher. Worthy are you because you were one good prophet among others. Worthy are you because you were a pacifist and didn't return evil for evil. They're not singing that. We must see that before anything else, he's worthy because he was slain. He's worthy because he was slain and ransomed for God people from every nation. There are lots of good teachers, lots of good examples, but no one else has ever been slain to ransom people for God. No one else has ever stood as a lamb that was slain because he went to the cross voluntarily to create a people for God and to take the punishment of their sins. We must see Jesus first and foremost as the one who was slain, as the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers because he's also the lamb looking as though he's been slain for us, for our sins, and for our transgressions. This is what it means that, that it's the gospel that leads us to worship. This is what it means when we say that we, we desire our worship as a church to be fueled by the gospel, that is, driven by the gospel, motivated by the gospel, because we must see Jesus first. And it's that sight that leads us to burst into song, singing, Worthy is the Lamb. First Peter 1.12 tells us the angels never tire of looking into the gospel. Revelation 5 tells us the angels never tire of singing about the gospel and worshiping, and seeing Jesus, casting our eyes on him. Let's do this today as we hear from his word, as we approach the table in a few moments. We see Jesus, and we worship him, the lion, the lion of Judah, the lamb who was slain. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we ascribe to you today all glory, honor, blessing, power, might, and wisdom. To you and to the Lamb. Father, for you are worthy. You are worthy, and as we, we sit here and we worship, we, we look to that day when, when all things will come to pass that you have planned, when all of your judgment on sin is poured out and your redeemed people are saved once and for all. And Father, we long for that day when our conquering King will come, the Lamb who was slain. Father, by your Spirit, Seal these texts and this glory to our hearts, we pray. In the name of Jesus.